This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today we're featuring Professor Adam Miller, who is the author of what I think is a remarkable book, Letters to a Young Mormon. Adam is one of the rising stars of LDS philosophy, and in this podcast he'll discuss several of his letters which were written with his 13-year-old daughter in mind. I think you'll be fascinated to hear his refreshing outlook on important philosophical issues affecting not only young Mormons, but really all of us. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider going online to dialoguejournal.com and subscribing to the print or electronic version of Dialogue. And we hope you'll think about making a tax-deductible donation. Every bit helps. This presentation was originally delivered to the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California on September 19, 2014. Our speaker tonight is Adam Miller, a professor of philosophy at Cullen College in McKinney, Texas. He's authored several books of philosophy, but the one he'll speak about today has been especially well received. And by the way, that book is available for purchase out there. It's only $10, and it's a little book, so you can actually buy quite a few of them and actually have them in your purse or back pocket without, you know, necessarily tipping over. And I like to compare it to... Well, I, I think in terms of chocolate oftentimes, this to me is like a, a piece of Godiva chocolate. Probably costs as much as a, as a Milky Way candy bar, but there's something special about a Godiva chocolate. And this book, this little book is packed full of Godiva chocolate type stuff. And he's going to talk to us about it tonight. It's an epistolary work, similar to, I guess, you were talking on the car, you've got Plato, as far back as Plato, I think of C.S. Lewis. Adam, as I mentioned, is the host of the one of, or has been the host of one of the Miller Eccles Texas groups. I was very impressed with his whole family, even his kids who sat through my lecture and uh, seemed to be engaged for some reason and even asked questions afterwards. So he does a good thing in raising his children. Without further ado, I will turn it over to Pat. tonight. Thanks for inviting me to come be with you. I am, as Morris pointed out, a, a professional philosopher. I'm a professor of philosophy. Last night at Claremont uh, I spoke and had my full philosophy professor's hat on, uh, but tonight I hope to wear more of the hat of a father than the hat of a philosophy professor. Though in my case, those two hats may bear more resemblance than in other people's <laughs> cases. I grew up in the church. I was Mormon before I even knew it. In Pennsylvania, my family, generations back on both sides from Pennsylvania, I don't have any kind of any kind of Utah connection to the church. I visited Utah. It seems like a nice place to visit. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't, have, I don't even have any kind of uh, West Coast, California, Arizona kind of Mormon connection. Yeah. Pennsylvania, right? What, uh, I grew up in what people from Utah referred to as the mission field. Right? <laughs> up there in Pennsylvania. In high school, uh, we, we attended just a little teeny tiny branch, uh, maybe 30, 40 sacrament meeting. We met in a house. And the living room was converted into the chapel, and priesthood was in the kitchen, and primary was divided up into the bedrooms upstairs in the house. And there was never any doubt about who the deacon's quorum, or teacher's quorum, or priest's quorum president was going to be, because I was the teacher's quorum, and the priest's quorum, and the deacon's quorum. I was I was both quorum and president in one. Uh, 
Uh, my wife and I, we live in Texas now. My wife is a biology professor at the, at the same college that I teach at. And it's nice we get to uh, drive to work together in the morning, get that lunch together. Uh, we get to come home tonight at night together. We have three children, uh, two boys, eight and ten, and uh, a daughter who is fourteen. In fact, today is her birthday. Oh, she's fourteen today. Okay. And here. She's bearing the brunt <laughs> of the postponement of her birthday party so that I could make a come and be with you tonight. Her name is Samantha. 14 years old. She started high school just a couple weeks ago here, which is crazy. But I bring up her in particular because uh, Samantha is, uh, uh, she is the person to whom the letters in Letters to Young Mormon are addressed, right? All of the letters here in Letters to Young Mormon, they're all addressed to S. Uh, and what I, what I tried to do here uh, in this little teeny book is to kind of compile uh, in a really concise fashion uh, a lot of the things that, as her father, I would want to say about what it means to be a Mormon. Right? A lot of those kinds of things that, that if you wait until there's an occasion to sit down and talk about these things, no such occasion ever arises. <laughs> Uh, and if it does, you're not likely to say what it was you wish you had said on that occasion. Uh, and so I, tr I tried, to, I tried to, to boil down here a lot of what I thought was involved in both, both the costs and the beauty of being a Mormon here in the 21st century. And I tried to include things here that I thought she would need to know for right now as a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old, but I also tried to include things in here that, that I thought she might not need to know until later. So things, things in here both for now and for later. So what I'd like to do tonight, uh, as Morris indicated, is I'd like to make it a little more interactive than, than maybe these things normally go. I'd like to give you a say uh, in which of the topics from the book we address together. Uh, and then after we take a look at any given topic, I want to I, I want to talk about it with you for a couple minutes before we talk about the next topic. So it won't just be all of me and then questions. It'll be some of you and some of me and then questions and then some more of me, something like that. You're agreeable. That's okay. Good. Uh, well, let me give you a choice here at the beginning uh, of a couple different topics. Let's uh, maybe pick one of the first couple of letters here. The first three, uh, you have the choice here of agency, work, sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? Or the third one, uh, sin. Do you have a... Sense. So, <laughs> should, we take a, should we do a show of hands? <laughs> sin? What's, what's your preference, Jane? Oh. Sin. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. For a long time, sin's been my preference. <laughs> my preference, too. <laughs> no, sin's a good place. <laughs> sin's a good place to start. Uh, the, letter's just, the letter's just a handful of uh, paragraphs here. The, let me give you the, uh, the letter, and then we can take questions and talk about it a little bit. Uh, this starts then on page 17, if you, if you want to follow along. Dear S, being a good person doesn't mean you're not a sinner. Sin goes deeper. Being good will save you a lot of trouble, but it won't solve the problem of sin. Only God can do this. Fill your basket with good apples rather than bad ones, but in the end, sin has as much to do with the basket as with the apples. And sin depends not just on your actions, but on the story you use those actions to tell. Like everyone, you have a story you want your life to tell. You have your own way of doing things and your own way of thinking about things. But, quote, this is from Isaiah 55, quote, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's the end of the passage from Isaiah. As the heavens are higher than the earth, God's work in your life is bigger than the story you'd like that life to tell. His life is bigger than your plans, goals, or fears. To save your life, you'll have to lay down your stories, and minute by minute, day by day, give your life back to Him. Preferring your stories to His life is sin. Sin is endemic to the story you're always telling yourself about yourself. This story shows up in that spool of judgmental chit-chat, sometimes fair, sometimes foul, that, like an offstage voiceover, endlessly loops in your head. This narration follows you around like a shadow. It mimes you, measures you, sometimes mocks you, and pretends in its flat black simplicity to be the truth about you. This story is seductive. It seems so weightless and bulletproof and ideal. But as a shadow, it hides as much as it reveals. You're not your shadow. No matter how carefully you line up the light, your body will never fit that profile. Sin is what happens when we choose our shadows over the lives that cast them. Life is full of stories, but life is not a story. And God doesn't love your story. He loves you. Your story, like everyone's, is a bit of a Frankenstein. Without your hardly noticing or choosing, it gets sewn together on the fly out of whatever borrowed scraps are at hand. You may have borrowed a bit from your mother, a bit from a movie you liked, a bit from a lesson at church. You may have stitched these pieces together with a comment overheard at lunch, a glossy image from a magazine, a second-grade test score, and whatever it sticks. More stuff is always getting added as other stuff is discarded. Your story's projection of what you should be is always getting adjusted. Your idea of your shadow's optimal shape gets tailored and tailored again. And like most people, you'll lavish attention on this story until almost unwittingly it becomes your blueprint for how things ought to be. And as you persist in measuring life against it, this Franken-Bible of the self will become a substitute for God, an idol. This is sin. And this idolatrous story is all the more ironic when, as a true believer, you religiously assign God a starring role in your story as the one who, with some cajoling and obedience, can make things go the way that you've plotted. But faith isn't about getting God to play a more and more central part in your story. Faith is about sacrificing your story on his altar. Everyone knows that little blush of pleasure that comes when you feel like your life and your story have matched up. And I'm sure you know the pinch of disappointment that follows when you feel like your life hasn't measured up. These blushes and pinches tend to rule our daily lives. They push and pull and bully us from one plot point to the next. Now I should be this, we say. Now I should have this. Now I should do this. Meanwhile, the pedestrian substance of life gets shuffled off stage in favor of epic shadows. Think about what it's like when you buy a new shirt. You slip hopeful into the dressing room, backed by doubled mirrors. You model it and ask, does this fit my story? Does this match my shadow? As a teenager, I never had much luck with this. In junior high, I grew fast. We didn't have much money, and my clothes never seemed to fit. My sleeves were short, my pants flooded. I was always yanking at my cuffs, trying to make them longer. Late one fall, my mother took me to buy a new coat. And I picked a kind of knockoff ski jacket, bright blue, trimmed with red and green. Right, this is the early 90s. <laughs> Long time ago, in the galaxy far, far away. Uh, we even bought it a size too big. And when we got home, I put it on, and I went out for a long, cold walk along our empty country road. And for a long time, I walked back and forth and back and forth on a half-mile stretch, imagining with great pleasure what a stranger might say if they saw me what they might imagine about who I was or where I was going in that new jacket. I was buttoned up safe. The coat seemed like exactly the kind of prop I needed to tell myself a more convincing story. And a more convincing story seemed like exactly what I needed to better protect me. That coat was just one of the many, many stories in which I've tried to hide. But even if you can get a story to work for a while, you'll still be afraid. And when it fails to meet the measure of life, as all stories do... You'll feel ashamed, and your shame and guilt will manifest once again in that familiar pinch of disappointment. Shame and guilt are life's way of protesting against the constriction of the too tight story you're busy telling about it. 
The twist is that shame and guilt manifest in this pinch end up siding with your story and blaming life. Guilt doubles down on the self-important story you're telling yourself about yourself. Guilt is sin seen from the perspective of your sinfulness. Even if you feel guilty about how you've hurt others, that guilt remains problematic because your guilt is about you and about how you didn't measure up to your story. Guilt recognizes your story's poor fit and then still demands that life measure up. It recognizes that your shoes are too small and too tight and then blames your feet for their size. Repentance is not about shaving down your toes. It's about taking off your shoes. Jesus is not asking you to tell a better story or live your story more successfully. He's asking you to lose that story. Those who find their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. It's Matthew. Uh, Hell is when your story succeeds, not when it fails. Your suffocating story is the problem, not the solution. Surrender it and find your life. Your story is heavy and it's hard to bear. Come to me, Jesus says. All you that are weary and carrying carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's Matthew again. Put down the millstone of your story and take up the yoke of life instead. You'll find Jesus' rest only in the work of caring for life. Let his life manifest itself in yours rather than trying to impose your story on the life that he gives. Obedience is important, but this isn't just about obedience. For sinners like us, the problem is not just that sin follows when we break the law. The problem is that sin severs God's law from life and then, rather than discarding it, cleverly repurposes it. In sin, the law, rather than rooting us in life, gets pressed into playing a leading role in the story that you're trying to tell. Maybe in your story the law plays the role of an accuser. You can't measure up. You're worthless. Or maybe in your story the law plays the role of an admirer. You're so great, you keep the laws, you do measure up. Uh, But either way, reduced to the role of an extra in your story, the law kills you because it abets your preference for tidy stories over living bodies. Keeping the law doesn't earn you heavenly merits, and breaking the law doesn't earn you hellish demerits. Both merits and demerits are about you. The purpose of the law is to point you away from yourself, free you from the self-obsessed burden of your own story, and center you on Christ. You don't need to generate merit in order to be saved. You need to come unto Christ and rely wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. That's Nephi. The law points wholly to Christ and his grace. Keeping the law is the work of relying on Christ's merit, not the work of generating your own. This is still hard work, but it's work of an entirely different kind. When you sin, you sin not because you failed to measure up to your story, but because you privileged your story in the first place. Privileging your story, you don't treat others or yourself with the care that life requires. By freeing you from your story, Christ frees you from your guilt. He saves you by revealing that even your own life was never about you. Bought back and story poor, Christ frees space in your head to pay attention to something other than yourself. You don't need rigid rules and expectations, you need spirit. You need to be sensitive and responsive. Rather than filtering other people's voices through the shame-making screen of your story, you must learn to be responsible for the work of caring for what you share with them. Jesus doesn't want you to feel guilty. He wants you to be responsible. And your stories aren't the truth. Life is. And only the truth can set you free. That's, that's probably the longest letter in the, in the book. But. Let's, let's pause for a minute here and we can talk about we can talk about this one like before we talk about a different topic. Perhaps total perfection will not come until after we are in the eternities. But instead of saying, I can't be perfect, I, I don't accept that. We, we can be perfect in certain areas, and we can walk the path that leads us to perfection, even though we may not be totally perfect in this life. I think there's a, there's a certain kind of perfection that's crucial to experiencing redemption. 
But I don't, I don't think it's the kind of perfection, even though certain kinds of perfection may be possible on my own, I don't think the kind of perfection that is involved in redemption has much of anything to do with the kinds of perfection I can manage to generate on my own. In the end, uh, the only kind of perfection that saves is the kind of perfection that derives from the fact that I have abandoned my life, died, and instead Christ has come to live in me. And whatever perfection, whatever perfection I ever have that's ever meaningful in any kind of redemptive way is a product of the perfection that he has wrought as a result of living in me, right? as a result of the degree to which I've gotten out of the way, especially with my own attempts to do it on my own, uh, and let him come and manifest himself moment by moment in my care for the world as it presents itself, right. something like that. Well, you, for example, I, I wouldn't say that you would pay a full tithing or be a, a moral person if you didn't accept Christ and know that that's why you're doing it because of what he's done for me yeah so he's part of what I'm talking about yeah and I think in which case you know we've sorted out the way that whatever perfection is involved there then in the keeping of the law isn't a product of the way that I kept the law but it's a product of the way that Christ manifested himself in my keeping of it right something like that so that I think the, the kind of perfection uh, that the gospel is interested in extending to us as available is as readily and immediate, uh, immediately available right here and now as it will be in the worlds to come. Because we can experience right here and now as fully as we will ever be able to in the future Christ living in us. Uh, that's the, in the end the only kind of perfection that going to get us anywhere. It's his, right? It's not generating our own merit, but always relying wholly on his merit. That's a kind of work, relying on his merit, but that's a totally different kind of work than generating my own merit. And there's a kind of hopelessness to that project of generating my merit, and rightly so. Uh, but there's a kind of deep and uh, sustaining hope in the work of always relying again and again on his perfection. It's a different kind of thing. No, I said we weren't going to take any more <laughs> questions on this particular thing. You'll have to, whatever we read next, you'll have to disguise your question as having been about that. Okay, thing. <laughs> and then we'll come back to it. Have a different topic here. How you want to do faith? You want to do scripture? Or you want to do prayer? Sex. <laughs> <laughs> We, we save that for the for the culminating portion of the evening. Prayer. That possible choice. Which one is better? That's a good question. Are you going to do this too? Which should we start with? We should really read the whole book, is what I recommend. <laughs> <laughs> For a mere ten dollars. <laughs> really ten dollars. Fifty percent less than speculative grace. Uh, all right, let's do prayer. It's page thirty-seven. Uh, dear S, when you pray, the most important thing is to stay awake. This is practical, fatherly advice. (laughs) Decades after decades of of experience, (laughs) this lesson has distilled itself upon my soul. (laughs) When you pray, the most important thing is to stay awake. Uh, To pray, you'll need time, and you'll need a private place, a room, a closet, a porch. You'll need silence. Avoid praying in your bed or at your bedside. If you want to sit in a chair, hard chairs are better than soft ones. If you want to kneel or sit on the floor, keep your back straight. Speaking out loud, even in a whisper, can help you stay on track. Leaving your eyes open, though unfocused, can also help. Experiment. The rule is, do whatever keeps you praying instead of sleeping. Uh, When you pray, notice how the same thing happens almost every time. You address God, and then you start to think about what you should say, and then this prompts you to think about something else, and then caught up in thinking about this other thing, you forget that you were saying a prayer. Has this ever happened? 
uh, your brain <coughs> your brain browns out. And eventually, after a few minutes, you remember why you were kneeling there in the first place. Uh, this moment is the key. When for the first time you remember this, then your prayer can start for real. Don't be discouraged. The substance of a prayer is this willingness to remember, to heave your wandering mind back once more in the direction of God, and then when it drifts off yet again, to heave it still another time. To pray is to practice remembering God. The more frequently you forget, the more chances you have to remember. And the more you remember, then the deeper your prayer will go. With patience and practice, you will remember God more often. Soon, instead of forgetting God for whole minutes at a time, you will remember Him every half minute or so. When you get that far, keep going. As your prayers gather momentum and that frequency increases, your connection to God will not just spark but burn. And when that happens, the lights will come on and you'll wake up. In prayer, you can practice remembering God in one of two ways. You can practice by remembering what you were saying, or you can practice by remembering to listen. The first way is important, the second is imperative. In the first case, you might try asking God for help with specific problems you have. That's good. Or better, you might try asking God to help you help someone else with a specific problem. Or also excellent, you might try expressing gratitude. For the most part, the more specific you can be and the less your prayers are about you, the better they'll be. Prayer deepens as it moves from self-concern to service to gratitude. But talking is just half a prayer. As a rule of thumb, take however much time you spend talking and then devote at least as much time to listening. Listening, though, is harder. Without the threat of a particular concern to guide you, you'll be especially prone to forget. To keep your attention steady, you might go for a walk. And to calm your mind, pay attention to the feel of each footstep. Or you might stay still and pay attention to your breath. In this case, be still uh, and breathe naturally. Feel your, lung, feel your lungs slowly expand and contract. Notice how the air is cool when you draw it in through your nose, but warm when your body presses it back out. Just let everything settle. Then against the backdrop of this stillness, know what feelings you have and what impressions come. Don't get carried away by these thoughts or feelings, but just sit with them. When you're done, try to act directly on your impressions and try to carry your prayerful stillness into the rest of your day. In all of this, try to pray like Jesus. Right? In his final hours, Jesus modeled two kinds of prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus withdrew from his disciples. Alone, quote, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Matthew 26. Uh, in all our prayers, we must, in the end, do as Jesus does here. We must express our will to God, but then, in silence, we must submit that will to His. Our willingness to wait on the Lord in silence and listen for His voice is what proves the truth of our continual confession, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. Not my story, but Thine. On Luke's account, after Jesus offered this prayer, there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. That's Luke 22. You'll find strength in prayer as you submit your will to God's and as your willingness to listen makes God's voice audible. Uh, the first prayer, this first prayer, though difficult, is encouraging. Uh, the second is more harrowing. On the next day, nailed to the cross and mocked by scribes and thieves, darkness shrouded the earth. In this darkness, quote, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This, too, is a prayer. It's a prayer that arises from an unbroken willingness to wait on the Lord in silence. Sometimes when you pray and wait in silence, a messenger will come, and you'll hear the voice of the Lord and you'll be empowered to do as God directs. But sometimes when you pray and wait in silence, there will only be silence. And you'll wonder where God is gone. And when this happens, you'll have to make a choice. You'll have to decide whether to get up and leave the room, or whether to continue in silence. And if you choose the first, then you'll return to the bustle of the world. But if you persist in the second you may discover something more powerful and primal than the voice of the Lord. You may discover that God's silence is not itself a rebuke, but an invitation. 
the heavens aren't empty, they're quiet. And God, rather than turning you away, may be inviting you to share this silence with him. This is part of what atonement looks like, sitting in shared silence with God. I once sat in silence for ten days. I sat in an old room on the floor. For seven days I practiced prayer. I would forget and then remember and then forget again. Sometimes I would forget for hours at a time. Sometimes I would remember for more. On the eighth day, my mind was wild and my heart was restless, and I wanted to get up and leave, but I sat. Then, while in that room, sitting on that floor, my heart broke, and I wept silent tears, and I woke up. The summer sun was full in the window, and the air was warm. Be still, the Lord says, and know that I'm God. Don't forget to pray. That's some fatherly advice about prayer. Uh, let's let's go back here. Could you just tell us some more about the experience that led to the, the last one you shared with your with your daughter? Yeah, I mean, I I hesitated to put that part in the book at all, right? Because it's uh, it's a little bit personal and a little bit unusual. But mostly I ended up putting it in there because I wanted, I wanted both her and other people to know that <laughs> it's Mormons do that kind of thing too, it's fine, you can do it, you can try it. <laughs> it's not, uh, you haven't left the reservation if you're interested uh, in practicing prayer uh, in a way that fits with one of the world's classical contemplative traditions. Right. Uh, I'm very interested both uh, theoretically, professionally, philosophically, and also in a practical vein. I'm very interested in contemplative meditative practices. Uh, in this particular instance, I, was, I spent 10 days uh, uh, on a Vipassana retreat, which is a form of Buddhist meditation, right? especially out of the, the Thai Buddhist tradition. And it just involved, it just involved 10 days a vow of silence and sitting from four in the morning until nine at night, just paying very, very close attention essentially to to my own breath, right? to, to the silence that accompanies my own respiration. And that's a, you know, it's a pretty, it's a relatively harrowing experience for the most part uh, when it's not excruciatingly boring. But there are also, I think, certain kinds of things that you, you only end up learning about yourself when you stare at a wall for a couple of days and don't let yourself run away. And uh, it, there ends up being, there ends up being uh, no place to hide in the end. You see a lot of things about yourself that normally you're decent at from yourself. And there often comes a point at which, at which you give up. And you stop trying to run away, and you see in a pretty clear way what it would look like to be where you are and to pay attention to what's right in front of you, and to not always be on the way to someplace else, wishing you were someone else, doing something else, having something else. Uh, that's pretty powerful. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. You didn't constantly check your email on your smartphone? Because that's, what, cause that's I did, what I would do. Well, you know, I, I, I had to turn my phone in. Yeah, exactly. I, I just... Wow. You got a message your phone just lit. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, distraction machines. Yeah. This is for your father, Cat. Have you discussed these letters with Samantha since she has uh, probably read them or is this part of your general parlance with her over years with her we have never sat down and had these conversations mm -hmm. I wasn't sure we ever would which is partly why I, I wrote them uh, she claims to have read the book <laughs> I, I think she probably has 
but I haven't I haven't tried to talk uh, about the book with her. I, I just wanted to kind of to let it be something for her to do with as she wants, and she can she can use it as she wants, read it as she wants or not. She can talk with me about it if she wants, uh, but. For now, at least, I wanted it to just be something that was stuck to her. Whenever she comes to you, you just say, "Go look at the page 37. Yeah, yeah, in the back. Uh, kind of related to that last question. Uh, quite aside from whatever reaction you may have gotten from Samantha, have you had any response from others, say, uh, in their teenage years? I've read some reviews of, of mm. your book, and um, they're all the ones I've read are glowing. But they've also been written by people that are in their 20s and 30s. Yeah. So I would kind of like to know whether you've got any kind of feedback from teenagers uh, on uh, on that uh, on that level of uh, conversation. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, no, not much. Maybe um, not time yet. It's still a new book, so yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know. On the one hand, on the one hand, I think teenagers are probably not really a very good judge of what they need to know. But they might be good judges of what they understand. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I think there's. I think it's pretty clear from even just a little bit of the book that we read together that the book uh, relatively demanding for a 14-year-old. But I think that's partly, I mean, that's partly by design. Partly what I want, <coughs> partly what I want the book to model is a version of religion that's relatively demanding. And partly what I wanted to do with the book too is that is that I wanted to, though I though I wrote the book with my 14-year-old in mind, I didn't. I wanted to speak to her as an adult, right? I wanted to treat her as an adult in the conversation, uh, and that tends to give the book a little bit of the flavor of my speaking to adults rather than rather than youth. But that's part of I think that's part of my strategy in addressing the youth, is to address them as as adults who were we to give them the chance can step up to the plate and think about hard things and make hard decisions and recognize that, uh, that living the gospel uh, involves real costs and not just real rewards and to, to weigh those things in the balance. Uh, I think we had, we had a hand. That's a feedback back. from a teenager. Oh, you have? Let's skip that. No, <laughs> Unless it's good, maybe we should find it. We'll find out if it's good or not, and then we'll decide whether to come back to it. Go to their so, first. Okay, we'll, we'll hold it in suspense. So, man. Sorry, this is going to be a letdown now. No, no teenage response over there. Well, you look relatively young, you. I mean. I'll take it. Um, well, I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I, I don't feel that it comes off as uh, speaking in that teenage. There, there's no hint of condescension in it in, to me. Good. So that's where I'm feeling like. You know, it, it may be to your daughter, but I'm, I'm certainly learning for myself here. And as someone who has an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old, I was curious how you would maybe distill this in, and this may be too personal of a question, but as far as teaching prayer, I feel like right now we're just getting into the remember to pray <laughs> by yourself, mm -hmm. let alone the... Mm -hmm. um, well, there is no quiet place in our home, so... <laughs> That's a relative term. <laughs> but, but I sense, I mean, I sense the importance in what you're saying. So, as far as, maybe to it, how would you address that? I think, I think, on the one hand, as with most things in the Gospel, the best you can do is to model a certain kind of thing for your kids, and then let them... Let them try to do it or not as they as they want, which they will anyway. Uh, what, but on the other hand, I mean, I think one practical thing that that we try to do as a family is that when we have when we manage to read a couple verses of the scripture at night and, and have a prayer, one of the things that we do is that we have 
we have kind of quiet time kind of where for like a minute everyone has to sit still <laughs> and quiet before we say the prayer and then it's a long time for an eight year old <laughs> and a ten year old right? both my, my, my boys are eight and ten and it's a long time but there's a lot of I think you know if you do that every day that's a lot of minutes over a lot of years and that's a lot of that's a lot of uh, being exposed that's a lot of giving them a chance to be exposed to how powerful silence is when they could easily go through a whole day for years at a time without ever having a minute of silence you try maybe something I mean it's, it's an experiment in progress I don't know if that's going to work or not <laughs> in the long run but something that we're trying yeah that one one thing before I before I come back to you then I mean I I originally sent this uh, sent the manuscript to Deseret Book to to take a look at to see if they if they wanted it it's not published by Deseret Book as you may have noticed uh, but their response was essentially no kids gonna read this or, or want to read it right this is not for kids it was essentially their response so you'd be you'd be in good company maybe if you if you came to that conclusion you'd be you'd be in sync with uh, uh, with Deseret Books vibe for what will sell or not at least yeah, so, well yeah um, I got last month uh, I took my I have three sons one's 29 one's 21 and one's 17 and we hiked the west coast trail of Vancouver Island oh, so nice. we're in the wilderness for, for 50 miles together and we read a chapter or two every night we, we, we took the letters with us wow. and um, my 17 year old uh, he was he was really kind of agitated because he just said why have I been condescended to my whole life why has this been so yeah. that was his reaction what really resonated though with all three boys was the well I missed the introduction I, I guess you know Elder Christofferson read, he quoted from your book Sunday Night to the world I've um, heard that. To, to, to the CES devotional. And I sent that marker to both of my older sons, and they nailed it. They recognized the, the text as being yours. Um, and it was the notion of your, your story and your life and how, how those can contradict. And, and that really resonated with all three boys, and they've brought it up a lot since. I did notice, though, you undermining my authority a little bit, yeah. because they started to look at their stories and wonder how much of that had been forced on them by their parents, yeah. <laughs> as well as their friends. So how do, you, how do you tell, maybe through prayer, but how do you tell Samantha to, to work that out, the, the, the phony part that you might be imposing on her as opposed to, to God's will, or Heavenly Father's will? I think, you know, I think part of it is that... I have to be humble enough to realize that I'm not even myself maybe a very good judge of what she should keep from what I have passed on to her. Right? That I'm, I may myself not always have a very good feel for, for what, what are the things that, what, what kinds of, you know, the kinds of ideals I've set out for her, which ones are really her, worth her keeping and which ones really she should just toss out because the rubbish and what hurt her in the end. Uh, I think, I mean, in the end, it, it depends on, on my trusting her enough to let her, to let her do it and to, to urge her in some sense to, to do it. Though, of course, I, I really want her to trust me in the meanwhile because, of course, I'm right. <laughs> I, even have, I have all kinds of degrees and letters after my name. People come. <laughs> surely, surely there's something to it. Alright, one more and then we'll do another. How much time do we. How long are we supposed uh, to go? We usually try to end around 9 o'clock. Alright, we can do one more. Uh, well, it strikes me that you're kind of the antithesis of a state president or general authority who tells Good. people. Uh, <laughs> who tells See, people this is the way my shirt is? I mean, I, I agree with you. I happen to agree with you, but we, we, we get told all the time what we should do. Most recently, the, you know, the president of BYU-Idaho is telling women that they can't wear capris no. because it's against the rule. And it well, sounds to me like that's the sort of rule that you sort of are suggesting people shouldn't pay so much attention to. It's cold in Idaho. 
It's practical advice. I I could swallow. I went to I went to BYU prep. I could swallow it. I think if my if one of my children wanted to go to to BYU prep, I think I'd be all right with that. But I think I would I would intervene if one of them said they wanted to go to BYU. I would would intervene and say, "There's." I'd offer some kind of tuition reimbursement plan. I don't know. I did BYU Idaho. I'm sure that many of the probably you know, when you went there, it wasn't BYU Idaho at the time, probably. But it's a beautiful place. Does wonderful things. But at the same time, too, I think a lot of the a lot of the worst, a lot of the things that bother me most about Mormon culture go home to roost up there. In a kind of, in a kind of unchecked, in a kind of unchecked way in the Idaho wilderness. <laughs> Whatever that opinion is worth. No, no, we gotta we gotta read one more before we. Do you, do you have a, a book in mind for your sons? Uh, I gave them copies of this one. <laughs> <laughs> this covers it all generally. I, <laughs> I don't see if I have anything left in me. It could be Samantha or son. Yeah. Dear son. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, let's, let me give you three choices here. I'm not going to give you the sex choice. That letter's too long. Let's do, uh, let's do history... For science or the last one, eternal life. Let's, uh, somebody in the, let's give somebody in the very back row. We'll give you the. We'll give you the. We'll, give, we'll let you choose. History, science, or science. or eternal life. Science. Science. All right, let's do. People don't usually ask for that one. I like this one. Though. The history one's really interesting too. Well, I agree that they're all... Ten dollars! They're all really good. He's not the I really like the science one, though. Okay. Uh, Dear S, it's page 51. Dear S, the world is big, and it's hard to find a handle. Problems of scale abound. On a human scale, the world looks flat. A hundred years seems like a long time, and the sun pretty obviously circles the earth. Just look up in the sky. Every morning you can watch with your own eyes. As the sun circles back above us, and every evening you can watch it circle back below. But the world is much rounder, time much deeper, and the earth more eccentric than this. We see the world through only the narrowest of keyholes. Given these limits, we can depend on getting things wrong. And we should welcome God's rolling revelation that the world is much, much stranger than it seems. God has been rushing to show us more of this strange world. You name it. Fossils, black holes, x-rays, DNA, set theory, one-dimensional strings, Neanderthals, dark matter, brain imaging, big data, evolution, retroviruses, interplanetary travel, the Higgs boson, non-Euclidean geometries, Mars rovers, etc., God used to send us an occasional rain. Now the revelations come as a flood, and we live in a post-Diluvian world, and the rain falls harder every day. God anticipated this downpour. Quote, Teach ye diligently, and my grace shall attend you, the Lord tells Joseph Smith, that ye may be instructed more perfectly in theory and principle and doctrine and the law of the gospel and all things that pertain to the kingdom of God that are expedient for you to understand. Right, this is section 88. This attendant grace is expansive. It touches not just the principles, doctrines, and laws of the gospel, but, quote, all things that are expedient. This includes, quote, things both in heaven and in the earth and under the earth, things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass, end quote. As we watch from our sofas, the world's secrets are getting shouted from the rooftops. Its fossils are being turned out of their graves. Its cored icebergs are testifying to God's long-suffering care. And the voice of mitochondrial Eve is speaking to us from the dust. Despite our self-absorption, willful ignorance, and pet parochialisms, God is prying open our eyes and ears. Who has ears to hear? God speaks both scripture and science. Listen for his voice. As a rule, God works with whatever small knowledge of the world we've already got. He speaks to people, quote, in their weakness, after the manner of their language, that they might come to understanding. That's section one of the Doctrine of Covenants. Uh, Our sacred texts witness God's willingness to suffer this weakness. 
They tell a mix of stories from many different times and places that illustrate what happens when the strength of God's polyphonic voice gets funneled into the weakness of our mono-channel ears. It's tempting to ignore the inconsistencies that result and impose on our scriptures a false uniformity, but we should hold off. These books are worth more rough. Uncut, they bear witness to real revelations given to real people, because they also bear witness to the host of real weaknesses that helped socket God's word into their worlds. Take Genesis 1 as an example. The Hebrews, as was common for their time and place, thought the world was basically a giant snow globe. When God wanted to reveal his hand in the creation of their world, he borrowed and repurposed the common sense cosmology they already had. He wasn't worried about its inaccuracies. He was worried about showing his hand at work in shaping their world as they knew it. In the beginning, on their account, there was only a kind of watery confusion. Then God divided the light from the dark. He divided the waters above from the waters below by inserting a kind of immense sheet of hammered tin whose art could form the bubble that is our sky. He set the sun and the moon and the stars spinning in their tracks through the world's roof and then built heaven on top of it. Sometimes this roof leaks and water trickles through and it rains. Sometimes the heavens are tight as a drum. Then God raised some dry ground in the center of the dome, marked Jerusalem as the world's belly button, and set plants growing. Once the plants were planted, he filled the earth with all the kinds of animals that Noah would later need to squeeze aboard his ark. And to round the whole thing out, God made men and women in his own indelible image. <laughs> then, though there was much more he could have said or corrected, God called this world good, and in that light the Hebrews could see its goodness better too. Now, here's the thing. I believe in a literal reading of this text. I believe the Hebrews literally thought the world was like that. And I believe that God literally ran with it and revealed his grace at work in their lives through it. More, I believe that God is just as literally showing himself to us in and through that continually rolling revelation that is science as we know it. The world given to us is not the same as the world given to them. We have two worlds here. But though our worlds diverge, it's the same God peeping through. Believing that the God of, our, believing that the God of their world is just as surely the God of ours doesn't commit us to believing in their version of the world. Rather, it commits us to believing in a God whose grace is full enough to fill them both. I didn't used to think this. Fresh from my mission, I was full of a zealous simplicity that would not truck with more than one world. There's a virtue to that simplicity, but there's a price, too. In the end, the price seemed to me too high, and the return too small. The world wanted to be bigger than I was letting it, stranger than I wanted it, and darker than I was willing to abide. The world wanted to be many. It wanted to be worlds without end. My wife herself, a biologist, bore with my plagiarized anti-science screeds. Biological evolution on a scale of 3.5 billion years can't be made to fit that biblical world, I argued. And there's something to that argument. In fact, I think it still holds. But now I think it's the wrong question. The question isn't, can evolution be made to fit with the biblical idea of the world? The question is, can evolution be made to fit with the biblical God who showed himself in that biblical world? I don't have any revelatory answers about how they fit, but given that both God and evolution are real, I assume the answer is yes. Uh, they do fit. Now it's, us, now it's up to us to open our doors, zip our slickers, and step out into the storm of revelations raining down on us. It's up to us to keep thinking and praying and testing from here. This is hard and often uncomfortable work, but it's good for us. It's good for us in general to own up to the prickly aspects of our history. And in this sense, a willingness to own our own deep biological past may be just as vital to our future as a willingness to own our seer stones, racism, and polygamy. Recent or distant, locked in vaults or bones, history is history, and we can't afford to play games whitewashing Brigham Young or Homo erectus. For my part, I'm convinced that the tested revelations that now shape our shared understanding of the world, that history slides on a line that's billions rather than thousands of years long, that our world lies on the periphery of worlds without number, 
that space is unthinkably blind and deep, and that life slowly and painfully emerged in our world as the joint product of terrible necessities and blessed accidents, I am convinced that these revelations are among the most commanding God has ever given. God told his prophets all along that a Savior would come in the meridian of time, but until recently we had no idea how much time he would need to save. The length of time's fraught and wandering line was a revelation sealed like a book and the rocks beneath our feet. These rocks have broken their silence, and in light of what they're saying, we know now that God's saving grace must be even more cunning and enduring than we've yet had strength to imagine. All right, that's the end of that. I don't know what the trouble was over a desert with the whole. <laughs> <laughs> they publish the Gibbons these days. You, you would think maybe in a couple more years. Let's see what happens. If it sells, is the thing. So you go buy a whole bunch of copies and convince them that they just cost letters to an old woman. That's right. Well, they do a whole series. <laughs> right, do you have any questions or comments about this? Brother? Well, I'm sorry, I had a... It was a broader question, so I'll save it for a little bit later. Anyone else, then? You're up, Rob. Could be about that time. <laughs> that one was so convincing. <laughs> how long did it take you to write it? How, how many drafts did you go through to polish it and to, to get your, you know, to get your images and then improve your images and so on and so forth? You know, it's, 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 it's not just theology and philosophy, but it's poetry. It's wonderful stuff. It's just really great stuff. That's, that's really kind. I mean, I think you can have two reactions to the, to the style of the book. You can say, oh, this is this is really kind of beautiful, where you can say, uh, this is cloying and saccharine and overwritten to within an inch of its life. <laughs> but I'm glad, I'm glad you, well, some people think the former. Yeah. Uh, I'm a bit OCD as a writer. And, uh, that would be my guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that you would have to, you had to go through it over and over and over again. To polish it, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, and you know, some people just can't keep you know, keep washing their hands over and over. When I write a sentence, just write it over and over. <laughs> yeah. uh, and there's a, there's some there's some virtue to that, but uh, it has its problems too. And I don't want to pretend that it doesn't. It took about I worked on it on and off on the side for about a year, until I felt like it was it was more or less in as good a shape as it was going to be. You know, that's a great question, by the way, Rob. Uh, back to your science thing, as I, as I listened to it, it resonated with me because I was thinking, first of all, I was disappointed you didn't do history, uh, <laughs> because I'm a historian and there are some scientific-type people in here. But I imagine that ground may have been covered in some respects <laughs> in this room. Well, before. that's exactly, well, yes. but. I felt like what you were saying about science likewise pertains to history and that yeah. a lot of what we get upset about today, we understand that it's just the same God, but our understanding of God is different and it could be that what he, or what people's understanding of him was a century and a half ago or a thousand years ago is fine and dandy for their time, but not necessarily for our time, and I sort of picture the God that I picture anyway sits back and enjoys watching us try to figure it out. <laughs> and hopefully that we're progressing as the centuries go by in figuring it out. Well, hopefully at least we're getting enough of what we need for this moment, even if it's not the exact same thing that they needed for theirs to, to fill our lives with, with a grace that will <coughs> redeem them. Uh, yeah. Now we have a couple of hands. Brother? Uh, you, you 
you've already come to contemplating your navel for 10 days. Yeah. Uh, a lot of what I'm hearing is uh, stuff that you get from uncorrelated learning sources. Uh, I don't know if you've been through the forum or those sorts of things, but it sounds like there's S and that sort of thing. Um, I'm just curious how much of your insight you percentage-wise you would ascribe to uncorrelated learning opportunities versus correlated learning? I would say, I mean, on the one hand, uh, on the one hand, I, I, mean, I mean for this book to be a really deeply Mormon book and recognizably Mormon, uh, even if your only exposure to books is church-produced books. But on the other hand, you know, the thing, the thing that has in the end, I think, profoundly shaped and guided my engagement with, with this familiar Mormon materials has been, you know, has been, you know, in almost a kind of cliched way, the world's best books. I mean, the, one example would be, I, I remember very, very clearly, uh, one, of the, one of the first times I read the Bhagavad Gita, right, which is the pivotal Hindu scripture, just this teeny little book, it's worth its weight in gold, it's desert island type book. Uh, but I remember very clearly, the first time I read that, uh, I came across this passage in which Krishna is explaining something to Arjuna about how he has to carry out his actions. Uh, and uh, it's blazing light shone in my head, and I thought, for the first time, I understand what on earth Paul is talking about in the book of Romans. <laughs> uh, it's often like that, right? Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, it, it, it's... Uh, the list of the list of the formative materials here, Augustine is is uh, so well known. It's it's ridiculous to to claim that those were the right. There's no originality in my claiming that those were the books that shaped me. It's almost embarrassing. Uh, should we do one more? One more question, ma'am. Yeah. The lady gets the lady gets the final word. <laughs> do, do you? I mean, it, it it seems to me like like what what. You know, your perspective, we all filter um, the teachings of the gospel through our own lenses and through our own life experiences, and they're all different. And as much as we correlate, or Salt Lake, you know, correlates what we, um, you know, uh, the teachings, we still have our own filters and we still have our own lenses and our own glasses that we, that we, we view the church and, and what works for us. I mean, it just seems like that. Do you, do you find that to be true? Yeah, I think that's that's inevitable. I think the thing I think the thing we have to keep in mind with respect to the kinds of correlated manuals, etc., that come out of Salt Lake City is that those uh, that correlated material gets formulated in a, in a very specific way according to very specific imperatives that have to do with the nature of the institution itself, not with us, right? It's the very nature. It's the very nature of the institution that shapes those materials in a certain kind of way for the sake of the institution. Now, you and I have a vested interest in the perpetuation of that institution, such that we should be grateful for its perpetuation. Uh, but those materials are shaped by and for the sake of the institution itself. Not for they're not shaped for us as as individuals with respect to living the gospel. We need that kind of institution, that kind of framework to help us live it. But the business of living the gospel, it can't be done by a long shot by the institution for us. Uh, we have, to, we have to, to take up the task ourselves and, and be the hands and toes and feet and kidney of the body of Christ, even as we allow for the fact that the body will have its own kind of demands and we can, we can bear that cross for the sake of the body. Something like that. Thank you. So, I, I mean, I take, I take a kind of... Uh, a very charitable view of the correlation materials that they have, there's a kind of necessity to them that we can't dispense with even when I think we often place a kind of expectation on them for ourselves that's not fair to that material when really we ought to take up that responsibility ourselves because no one else is going to do it for us
Thank you, Adam. That was You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit DialogueJournal.com. Thank you.